The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning, Bereans. We're continuing our study this morning in 1 John, and this is our 35th week. And so far, at the end of this 35th week, we'll have covered 76 verses in 35 weeks. That's just a little over two verses a week. That doesn't seem right. Huh? (laughs) Something must be wrong here. Um, Well, I hope you all are learning something anyway from this study. I really am. I'm just really enjoying this study in 1 John. Um, Let me ask you this. If someone were to ask you, what is 1 John all about? What would you tell them? Okay. What's the theme of 1 John? It's fellowship. All right? And that's what we see in verse 3. He said, that which we have seen... Who's the we here? It's the apostolic circle. John is writing from that apostolic circle. And he says, which we have seen. John saw the Lord and heard... They, they were there when he taught. We proclaim to you, that's the people that First John is writing to in Asia Minor, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Alright, they want those people in the church to be able to have fellowship with them. And he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Yeshua the Christ. So if they're fellowshipping with that group, they'll be also fellowshipping with the Lord. It'll be one big happy fellowship. And this verse here, verse 3, introduces the purpose of this epistle. It's so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, this is a henna purpose clause with a present active subjunctive. The main theme of the epistle is fellowship with God. Now, what we need to understand is that John expresses this idea in various ways throughout the epistle. To have fellowship with Yahweh is only found in verse 3 and in verse 6 of chapter 1. One of the most common phrases is to be in Him. He used that over and over. Or abide in Him. Another expression for fellowship with God found only in John is to have God or to have the Son. And to know God is another synonym for fellowship. Same idea. Now we saw this in our last study where he said anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this is not saying that if you don't love, you're not a Christian. I can show you plenty of Christians that aren't very loving. Okay? But if you don't love, he's saying you're not in fellowship with the God who is love. In John's mind, there may be Christians whose fellowship with God has been damaged, or they never even reached that. So they're not at this present moment in fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, John is not writing to his adversaries. Rather, he wants his little children, his beloved, to have fellowship with God. That's what he's... As the apostolic circle, John and the other apostles, they are in this intimate fellowship with God. He wants these believers to share that same thing. And that's the burden of John in this whole letter. To teach us how to be sure that God abides in us. Now, we ended our study last week with verse 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, 
In this is love. This discusses love's basic character. He is saying, here's what love is really about. It's not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. In other words, he's saying, it is displayed toward those who don't love you. He's saying, this is love. It's loving people who don't love you. This is how God loves. This is how we are to love. God's love was not a response to ours. You get that, right? Aren't you glad about that? It wasn't a response to ours. God's motivation for sending His Son to die for us was not in response to our love. It was in response to nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, it was in response in spite of our hatred and our rebellion towards Him. He loved us. He says, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you remember what the word propitiation means? What is it? It's the removal of wrath. We just sang about it in that song. The removal of wrath. God was, God's wrath was towards us because we were His enemies. The removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. That sacrifice was Christ. In biblical propitiation, it is not humans on their own initiative figuring out what God likes, but it's God Himself declaring what kind of sacrifice He accepts and then providing it. Christ and Christ alone is our propitiation And people, He is the only propitiation that there is. There's none other. That is, out of love for the glory of God, He absorbs the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. And I share with you what John Stott, how he summarizes this last week. In biblical propitiation, he said, God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. I like that. That's an awesome definition when you get it. God Himself gave Himself in the person of His Son, to save us from His own wrath. And His wrath was satisfied in that propitiation, and then He can offer us love. It's amazing. Now, for our study this morning, we're going to look at verses 11 through 16a. And we're stopping at 16a because I think that's where the division should be in this chapter. But verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, beloved here, agapetos, It literally means those who are loved. The loved ones. So, the loved ones, if God loved us, the if here is a first class condition, which means since. Since God loved. There's no question here. And I don't, I wish the translations would have dealt with this, these first and second and third class conditions better because. You, you read this if, and you're like, if, well, maybe he doesn't. Ma-. No, that's not if as how we use it. All right? This is first class condition, since. All right? Since God so loved us, so here should be understood in such a manner. Since God loved us this way, referring to the sacrifice of Him sending His Son to be a propitiation. Since God so loved us, John's conclusion is inescapable. We ought to love one another. Ought here is aphelo in the Greek. Aphelo means you owe it. It's an obligation. All right? So you're saying we are obligated to love one another. As John's use of the verb aphelo here indicates that he views mutual love on the part of Christians as a duty. This word implies obligation or commandment. John uses this word three times in this epistle. He used it in 2.6. 
Whoever says he abides in him, and this is the theme of this letter is abiding. If you say you're abiding, he says you're obligated to walk the same way he walked. You're, you're obligated to live like Christ, is what he's saying. Then he says in 3.16, by this we know love. Again, he's explaining, here's what love is, that he laid down his life for us. That's love. Love is sacrificial. And he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This love that we are under, it brings us an obligation to give sacrificially. He laid down his life for us. We are under obligation to lay down our lives for each other. It's about sacrifice. You know, this is so missing in Christianity of our day. Contemporary Christianity is about me. I don't mean me, but me. You know what I'm saying? It's about me. I mean, it's fix me. Make me happy. Make me prosperous. Make me healthy. It's not about Christ. And it's not about others. That love can be commanded shows that it's not a feeling. It's an action based on commitment. And this is what we were called to do. To love one another. Now, remember what we saw in verse 10. He said, in this is love. In other words, here's how love really works. It's displayed toward those who don't love you. And maybe even hate you. This is how God loves, and this is how we are to love. Now, since believers have received this love from God, all of us, if you're a believer, you've received this love, we're under obligation to love one another. Now, this pattern, and there is a pattern here throughout Scripture, this pattern of receiving from God and then giving to others is very familiar to John. If you remember back in the Gospel of John, in the upper room discourse, Yeshua washed the feet of the disciples. All right? Showing His love. Showing His servanthood to them. And you know, as, as Yeshua finished washing the disciples' feet, and He got done, you'd expect Him to stand up and say, as I've done this for you, now you do it to me. You wash my feet. But that's not what He said at all. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Ought here, ought here is the same word. Aphelo. He tells them that they are under obligation to watch, wash each other's feet. People, the way we love God in response to His love for us is to love one another. Now think about that. You know, we talk about loving God. This is how you love God biblically, okay? The way we love God in response to His love for us is to love one another. That's what it's about. Because Christ dwells in us. And so, how we treat others is how we treat Christ. See, what God has given us, He wants us to give to each other. When we sacrificially love one another, we're going to be loving Yahweh. Look at Matthew 25.40. The Lord's given this parable. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So in this parable, he's saying the way you treat other believers is how you treat me. You know, I think if we could got if we got that in our head and really kept it there, we might be a little bit more loving towards each other. Because how you treat other believers is how you treat Christ. 
Now watch, he goes in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Um, this is Saul's conversion. After falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was he persecuting Christ? He was persecuting believers. And that's why I love this question because it tells us that Yeshua identifies with His people. See, to persecute or harm a believer is to do it to Yeshua. This verse should really guide our treatment of other believers because how we treat other believers is how we treat Christ. Then in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. You know, you're reading along and you get this and you're like, okay, John, what is going on? This, is so, this sounds so random. We're talking about love and all of a sudden, hey, no one's ever seen God. Okay. Alright, let's deal with the statement itself and then we're going to look at how it fits in the context. Let's deal with the statement first. It says, no one's ever seen God. Does the Bible bear that out? I mean, let's go back to Exodus 33. Moses, in Exodus 33, is asking God, hey God, I want to see you. And he says, but he said to him, you cannot see my face, my panim, for no one shall see me and live. Alright? So God tells Moses, when Moses asked, Moses said, I want to see you. This is God's answer. And this goes right along with our text in 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. It also goes along with what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You understand if someone's invisible, you can't really see them, right? Alright. 1 Timothy 6.16 Who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light. God dwells in unapproachable light. Therefore, you can't approach it, you can't see Him. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor, eternal dominion. Amen. So the Bible teaches that God cannot be seen. But what about the verses in the Tanakh that seem to contradict this? Verses like Isaiah 6.1 In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. This is a throne room vision. Isaiah says he saw the Lord. Now, there's a lot of passages in Scripture that record various individuals saying they see God. So how does this fit with what uh, John says? we got passages like Exodus 34. Keep this passage here in your mind for a minute. Isaiah 6.1. Let's go to Exodus 24 and notice what that says. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Alright, that seems to be saying that they saw God, right? (laughs) This statement, they saw God, is so troubling to the translators of the Septuagint, that they changed it. Alright? Instead of they saw the God of Israel, the Septuagint says they saw the place where He stood, the God of Israel. So they didn't see the God of Israel, they saw the place where He stood. Alright? And they proceeded to describe the appearance of the place under His feet. So it bothered them. So they said, let's just fix that. Okay? But the majority text has God as the object of the seeing here, even though it refers to His feet. Now, Michael Heiser commenting on this text in Exodus, 
and 30-20 says this, I think the point is that you can't see the direct presence of God unveiled, <clears throat> like His direct presence. I would take panim, that means face, that's Hebrew for face, to refer to unveiled presence, because then you would die. I think that's really the point. The unveiled, unfiltered presence of God, the glory itself. All right. So, and I agree with him. I think that's what it's talking about. You cannot see God in his glory. I think you'd just be incinerated. All right. So, the theophanies, the appearances of God, we see throughout the Tanakh, didn't involve the full revelation of God as he is in himself, but only a suggestion of what he is in form that a human being could understand. No one has seen God in his pure essence without some kind of a filter. You just can't do it. You know what God did to Moses? He said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you and you can see my back parts, you know, but you can't see my face and live. Now, let me just say here that whenever anybody sees Yahweh, it's Yahweh the Son that they see. The second person of the Trinity. That text from Isaiah, John quotes that text from Isaiah speaking of Christ. So it's Christ who is on that throne that they are seeing. Look at John 5.37. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. So Yeshua is saying, the Father, you've never seen His form. Okay? Then look at John 6.46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except He who is from God, He has seen the Father. So He's talking about Himself. And again, He says, no one, this is the Father, nobody's seen Him. Look at John 14.9. Yeshua said to Him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. In other words, the only way you're going to see God is looking at Me. You see Me, you see the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The Son is the visible member of the Trinity. So when anybody says they see God, they're seeing the Son. No one has seen God. So John's denial here that anyone has seen God may well be a polemic response to a direct claim of the opponents to have seen God. It's possible that the early Gnostic teachers, somehow influenced by Eastern mystery religions, claim some type of vision of God or of God. In other words, they, they're saying, we saw God, and John said, no one ever saw Him. No one ever did, except through the Son. Now let me ask you this. What does God's invisibility have to do with the discussion of love? Hmm? Okay, because this, listen, this is powerful if you get this. Alright? He didn't, John's just not, I didn't have anything else to say, so I, by the way, no one's ever saw God. No. He's building an argument here. And I think it's very powerful. I hope I can communicate that. John continues, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now what does that mean? He means that the unseen God who was historically revealed in the incarnation of the Son, is now revealed by the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit in His people when they love one another. You get what he's saying? This is an amazing thought. 
People do not see God and they may not read the Bible, but they will see God when the Christians love one another. Mutual Christian love manifests the presence and action of the invisible God. That's what he's saying. No one's ever seen God, but when you love one another, God's on display. So the question John is posing to us is, how is this love of God demonstrated today? In the day he was writing, and in today, how do we demonstrate this love? He says, if we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. Now, we know that it was demonstrated in Christ. When he came in the flesh, he went to the cross, he died for our sins, he rose again. The love of God was so demonstrated in that. But we can't see him. Any of you ever seen Yeshua? As God was manifest to men in the past through the incarnation of Christ, John is saying God will be manifest to mankind in the present, not in Christ, but in the loving Christian. So when the world looks at us, what do they see? Do they see Christ? Do they see God? John's not alone in this. Paul put it this way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's this concept again. You're beloved, so do what? Imitate God. Now, be imitators of God. Be here is a present imperative and has the idea, become. So they're to develop continually into imitators of Yahweh. The Greek word for imitator here is mimites, which is our word when we get our English word mimic. You mimic, you copy something. It's, it's what an actor does when they're playing a role. All right, They're trying to mimic someone so they learn all they can about that person so they can try to reproduce that person. Trying to reproduce that character to demonstrate that. The constant call to the Christian, listen, is to be like Yahweh. I mean, you're reading across, you're reading through your Bible, you come across, be imitators of God. Oh, that's easy, right? Again, people, let me remind you, the Christian life is supernatural and it's lived by the power of the Spirit and dependence on the Spirit. You can't do this by yourself. But it's Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. We are to be image bearers. People see us, they're to see God. Now, if we're going to imitate Yahweh, what's the prerequisite? Hmm? You have to know them if you're going to imitate them, right? You can't imitate someone you don't know. You have to know them well. To know Yahweh, you have to understand who He is as revealed in the Word of God. That's the only place you're going to learn about God. Yahweh has revealed Himself to us through His Word, the Bible. And it's crucial that we come to know Yahweh as He's revealed Himself and not Yahweh as our culture portrays Him, or as we would like Him to be. Because we have all, you know, developed a God in our mind that we like and we can handle and we can control. That's not the God of the Bible. We are to imitate, we are to mimic the God of the Bible, which means we have an intimate relationship with Him through spending time in His Word. This is why I'm always harping on, read your Bible. Okay? The only place you're going to see God. He's not going to show up on TV, in your TV you know, shows that you watch, even in these evangelists on TV, believe me, you're not going to see them there, okay? you got to get in your Bible. Now, let me ask you this. 
Does anyone know what the next verse in Ephesians says? What? No, not yet. How do we how are we imitators of God? What's John say? How do we imitate God? Beloved one, the next verse here says, and walk in love. And watch, as Christ loved us and gave us again, he's you know, here's the example. Here's how you love sacrificially, just like Christ did. So imitate God. How do you imitate God? Walk in love. The statement and here in verse two serves as a coordination or an ep-exegetical conjunction, explaining what he means in verse 1. These two statements parallel each other. To imitate Yahweh is equal to walking in love. John and Paul are saying that the unseen God becomes visible in the love of the believers. Is it any wonder that people don't see God today? (laughs) Because this is how he manifests today, all right? Christ doesn't live now. He's not, I mean, he's not physically in the earth with us. We can't see him. We can't watch him. God wants to be visible, but the way he is visible is through the love of his people. When we love as we should, God's love is perfected in us. And we reveal that he abides in us. See, our love is evidence of His indwelling presence. And it becomes the revelation of that presence to others. He said, if we love one another, God abides in us. Now, this if is a third class condition. Which means potential action. This if is like our if. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Okay? Because maybe you won't love one another. I mean, he's not so foolish to think all Christians just love everybody. Like they should. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. He doesn't use a first class condition here and say, well, since you're going to love one another, but if. We could say that if we don't love one another, God does not abide in us. Alright? Because he says, if you love, God abides. What if we don't love? Well, we already saw this in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And we've talked about this. To know God is to abide. That's how he uses it. Same as abiding. I said that over and over. Knowing God is a synonym for abiding in 1 John. So anyone who does not love does not abide in Christ. If we love, we're abiding. If we don't love, we're not abiding. But if we love one another, he says, God abides in us. Now, I've been telling you throughout this study that most commentators... Disagree with my position on 1 John. All right, They take 1 John as a test, a series of tests, on how to tell who's a real believer. And not as John telling believers how to have fellowship. All right, So this is something you need to study and you need to figure out what, what do you think he's actually saying here. Commenting on this verse, Stephen Cole writes this. He says, while abide is John's word for fellowship with God. I agree with him that far. It would be a mistake to think that only some believers enter to this abiding relationship, while other believers do not. See, they take abiding to mean being a Christian. They don't see any difference between these. He goes on to say, but in John's mind, every Christian abides in Christ and Christ in him. And I'm like, really? Then why does he keep telling Christians to abide? I mean, isn't that kind of a waste of time if they do? 
If you're not abiding in Him, and He in you, then you're not saved. Okay? So when we talk about assurance of abiding, we're talking about assurance of salvation. See, because in this text here, he's going to talk about you know, the assurance that we're abiding, and they take it as salvation. John Piper, commenting on this verse, says this, There are some today who teach that our abiding in God and God's abiding in us simply refers to an advanced stage of intimacy between God and the mature Christian. They say that you can still be a Christian and yet not abide in God and not have God abiding in you. They say that when John wants to give assurance of <clears throat> to give assurance of is not is not that you are truly born again, but that you are walking in intimacy with the Father. So he's saying, Yeah, that's me. Okay, he's talking about me. Alright? Now, we've gone over this many times in this series, but it's really important to understand. So let's back up to what John wrote in the Gospel of John, okay, in the upper room discourse with the Lord. In John 15, 3, he says, already you are clean. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. All the disciples? Who's gone? Judas has already left the upper room, okay? And that's why he says, you are clean. Because Judas isn't there anymore. Because if you go back to chapter 13, where he originally used this word clean, he says, and you are clean, in verse 10, but not every one of you. Oh, because Judas is still here, but he's leaving shortly, alright? So clean refers to salvation. Not all of them are clean, because Judas was there. So Yeshua says to those who are clean here, in verse 15, I mean, yeah, chapter 15, verse 3, Judas is gone, just the, the believers are there, and he says, you're clean, and then he says this, Abide in me. That's a strong word in the original text. It's in a tense that expresses a decisive command. It's in the active voice which indicates it is something that we are expected to do. We initiate that. Believers, we're commanded to abide in Christ. But what exactly does it mean to abide? Well, to abide is used with the meaning of dwelling in. In other parts of the Gospel. Yeshua says, keep close to me. In other places, it's follow me, do what I do, obey my commands. Christians are exhorted to abide in Christ because the privilege and duty may be neglected and very often is. If these are similar, if being a Christian and abiding are the same thing, then why does He command Christians to do this? It's like, you're a Christian. Be a Christian. Um, Lord, you alright? What are you saying here? I mean, this is clear. This is language, okay? This is the language of the text. And I don't know how you get around you know, Christ commanding Christians to be saved. We see this same idea, this calling Christians to do something in our text in 1 John. 1 John 2.28 Now little children. Techna. These are believers he's talking to. And look what he says to the believers. Abide in me. Christians are called to abide in Christ. Why command a believer to do what he's already doing if he's a believer? Makes no sense. Look at 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him. Now again, this synonym with abiding. Whoever says, I'm abiding, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth's not in him. So if this is a Christian, then if you say you're a Christian, but you don't keep the commandments, you're lying. What commandments? How many commandments? What percentage of the commandments do you have to keep? 
Okay? This is eternal life if, if these guys are right. Alright? Knowing is a synonym. If we take knowing to be equivalent with abiding, then you have to keep the commandments to be saved. Look what he says in verse 5. Whosoever keeps his word in him, verily the love of God is perfected by this. We know that we're in him. Again, being in him, synonym for abiding. And then he says in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The believer who abides in Christ is under an obligation to live like Christ. John Piper goes on to say, what does John mean by abiding in God and God abiding in us? It is an intimate second stage. Is it an intimate second stage of Christianity? Or is it just plain being a Christian? Jesus said to John in 15.6, this is how Piper refutes it, If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Abiding in Christ does not refer to a second level of maturity. It refers to whether you're in the vine or in the fire. So he sees this as, see, being in the fire, you're not saved and you're going to hell. People, in the context of 1 John, Yeshua is telling His disciples that if they don't abide in Him, if they don't bear fruit, they will be disciplined. Fire is a common symbol in the Word of God. It occurs throughout Scripture to describe judgment of both believers and unbelievers. Yeshua is telling us, if we don't abide, if you don't bear fruit, there is discipline. Because I'm calling you, as My people, to bear fruit. John goes on to say in verse 12, and His love is perfected in us. This perfected here is the Greek word teleao, which doesn't mean perfect as much as it means mature or complete. See, if we love one another, love of God is complete in us. The entire phrase, His love is perfected in us, then refers to what happens when believers love one another. See, the love that comes from God The love that He has for us reaches perfection in our lives for others, which is what God wants from believers, which is what we're commanded to do. God's love reaches its intended goal when it flows from God to us to others. It's complete. That's what love's for. To love others. That's why God loves us. So we'll love others, and as we love others, we are loving Him. The love with which God loves us must in turn be extended to fellow believers. When you see a Christian brother loving another Christian brother or sister, truly loving in the sense of the Scriptures, then you have seen God in that individual. The invisible God has become visible. And that's what He means. The early church fleshed out these commands. Okay, It's hard for us as American Christians because we're in such a different culture and I believe that the culture we live in is probably one of the worst cultures for Christianity. Because it's so watered down and easy. There's no persecution. Everything, you know, the thing that grew the early church was persecution. We don't have that. We have prosperity and health, wealth. You know, because of health, wealth doctrine and because these preachers can make millions preaching this stuff, it shows you how messed up this church is. But the early church, a writer named Cecilius, who wrote in 2.10 A.D., said this, They know one another by secret marks and signs. And they love one another almost before they know one another. The Greek writer Lucian, who lived from A.D. 120 to 200, said this of the early church, 
It is incredible to see the fervor in which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, and he's talking of Yeshua, has put it into their hearts that they are, that they are all brethren. And the church father Tertullian said, It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look, they are prepared to die for one another. Do you think that could be said of the American church today? Do you think anybody would describe the church in America that way? God, whom no one has seen, will be visible in our manifestation of love. God's love for us is perfected only when it's reproduced in us and goes out to others. As believers love one another, we make the invisible God visible to the world. If you want people to see God, it's through love. Let's move on. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us a Spirit. Now, most writers take this verse as referring to the assurance of salvation. Okay? Because they see abiding as synonymous with salvation. So this is how we have assurance. Alright? And the way we have assurance, they say, is you know He's given us a Spirit and the way we know we have the Spirit is because we believe. Now, I agree with them there. The way you know you have the Spirit of God is because you believe. Because the Spirit enables you to believe the truth. Alright, so I agree with him there, but I don't think this is talking about salvation at all. And the words start out this, by this. John connected the thought of this verse directly to the previous verse. So let's look at them together. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us by this. We know that we abide in Him. When we're loving others, as God has called us to, we know by experience that God abides in us. Because if His love has been perfected in us, we know that that love can only be perfected through the Holy Spirit. He's the source of the abiding believer's love for one another. Again, it's spiritual. It's supernatural. That's how people see God in it. In Galatians 5.22, Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, the first place in the list, the place of emphasis is given to love. Because love is the focus of this entire ethic appeal. All the other moral qualities in the list define and flow from love. The fruit of the Spirit. It's a Spirit-produced thing. When you're walking in the Spirit, which would be synonymous with abiding in Christ, this flows forth from you. Now, he lists the works of the flesh in that too. You might want to look at those. They're not real pretty. You see what's coming out of your life and you know what you're being directed by. Now, the Greek word here of literally means out of. He has given us out of His Spirit. Alright, so John is looking at something which God has imparted to us out of His Spirit, namely love. So a believer's abiding in God and God's abiding in him or her becomes evident by the demonstration of love that comes out of His Spirit. That's how we have this assurance. You see yourself loving, you know, I'm abiding in God because this doesn't come from me. Alright, verse 14 says, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay, now I need you to hang on with me here for a minute. Understanding this verse is crucial to understanding this epistle. 
Because in this verse, I think we see this epistle, John's goal for these believers is being fulfilled. All right? He says, when we have seen and testified, that sounds like what John writes in the prologue of this about the apostolic circle. Let's go back and look at it 1-1. That which was from the beginning. He's talking about the life of Christ here, which was from the beginning. In other words, the beginning of the gospel ministry of Christ. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. They're talking about Christ. We've seen Him. We heard Him. We were there. In verse 3 he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So, we saw Him. We handle them, we touch them, we live with them. We're telling you about what we saw. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. See, once you get on board, you'll have fellowship with us. And guess what? Our fellowship's with the Father, so you have fellowship with everybody. We're all fellowshipping together. All right? Now let's put all these verses together. Verse 14 is at the bottom, 414. Most take verse 14 as it is in the prologue as speaking of the apostolic circle. And most commentators say that the we here, we have seen him testify, he's just going back to the prologue saying the same thing. But is he? I think the key to understanding this is understanding the we here. Very important. Just because it was used that way in verse 1 and verse 3 doesn't mean he's still using it the same way. We have to find out how is he using it. In all places where you see the apostolic we, we usually have a contrasting you nearby. Okay, so John is saying, we, the apostolic circle, proclaim to you, the believers in Asia Minor, that he's writing to. So there's a a we and a you. But we don't see that in verse 14. The subject we that runs through this passage begins at verse 7. So we have to back up to verse 7. And he says, beloved, let us love one another. And the us is the readers and the apostolic circle, the writers, because he's not saying, let us, let, let the apostolic circle, let us love one another. You guys, we don't care what you do. No, he's telling them all, let us love one another. So he starts in verse 7 with that. That includes the readers. Well, the same readers are included in us and we in verse 9. We, us, and our of verse 10. Us and we in verse 11. And we and us in verse 12. And we and us in verse 13. Got all that? Alright, so here's what I'm saying. There's no reason to change its meaning in verse 14. He's been using it of the whole group. The we of verse 14 is not the apostolic circle as it was in the prologue. It's the apostolic circle plus the readers. The readers were to have fellowship with the apostolic circle and what that circle had seen in verse 3. Okay, They're saying, we saw Christ. We want to share with you what we saw. Well, the fellowship could not be with the visible person of Yeshua to the readers. Yeshua's gone. So those readers can't have that same, we saw Him, we were there. That eternal life which with the Father was manifest to the apostolic circle is now, listen, here's the key, that fellowship is now, that witness is being manifest within the loving Christian community. In other words, the apostolic circle saw Christ, they dealt with Christ. These people he's writing to don't. Christ is gone, but they still see it in the love of other believers. Because the invisible God is making Himself visible through the love of these people. What the apostolic circle has seen, the love of Christ is now being seen among the believers who are abiding in Christ. 
He says, and we have seen and testified. The word seen here is theaomai, which is the same word used in 1.1 for looked at, which means to gaze intently at. Now, most of John's readers had not, just as all of us have certainly not, seen Yeshua in the flesh as the apostolic circle did. But we also can see God, we can bear witness, we can testify with the apostolic circle that God that sent Yeshua into the world to, was the Savior of the world. We can share fellowship with the apostles' experience that John says was the goal in writing this epistle. The purpose of this goal is you can have fellowship. We can see God both in the manifestation of His love and in God's life behind that love. So we're coming full circle here. They're actually, this is the fulfillment of the prologue. You can have this fellowship when you're loving one another in that community. You see God like we saw Him. As you observe Christians loving one another, we can live out the very purpose of this epistle because we're entering into that fellowship of loving other believers. That fellowship that the apostles and apostolic circle were, and we're joining into that through us seeing God through loving. He says, the Father has sent the Son. Sent Him to do what? Well, verse 10, He sent Him to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there are theologians who ought to know better, but tell us that the idea of a God who must be propitiated is revolting. To think of a God who does not love unless He's been propitiated, unless an offering has been offered to Him, is to degrade, they say, the love of God. And sadly, that's a really common view among Liberal theologians. It's the Father who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In other words, a loving God does require propitiation, but He supplies the propitiation that satisfies Him. You remember back to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told by the Lord to offer Isaac his son. Incredible story. God comes... I made you a lot of promises, Abraham, through Isaac, right? Now I want you to take Isaac and kill him. And you just can't even fathom, you know, what's going through. But Abraham doesn't say, hey God, can we talk about this? Or wait a minute, God, this is not like, is this really you? He doesn't have any argument at all. He just gets together and heads on out, okay? Well, students of the Bible recognize this is typical. It's an illustration of what would ultimately come to pass when the Father gave the Son. And Paul says in Romans 8, he says this, He who did not spare his own son. And Paul is using language here derived from the Greek translation of Genesis 22 that says he spared not his own son of Abraham. He gave up his son and he gave up his son, he says, to be the Savior of the world through an atoning sacrifice. See, the fact that God the Father sent God the Son into the world refutes the Gnostic false teaching about the supposed dualism between spirit being good and matter being evil. Yeshua was truly divine, and He was sent into an evil world of sin to redeem us. He says He came to be the Savior of the world. This phrase here, soter ha cosmos, is found twice in the New Testament. Savior of the world. It's found here. Anybody else know where the phrase is found offhand? Huh? No, not John 3.16, but you're close. You're a chapter off. 
Uh, this, this same exact expression is found in John 4 when Yeshua is dealing with the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan villagers' response to the woman who encountered Yeshua at the well of Sychar, when they heard her testimony, they came and they met Yeshua themselves. And John says this in verse 42. They said to the woman, the, the Samaritans, okay, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Now, why did they say that Yeshua is the Savior of the world? Because they had learned this truth from, the, from Yeshua Himself that the salvation Christ preached and provided is not only for Jews. And that's what they're saying. These are Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. They were hated by Jews. They were hated by Gentiles. They, they just were the lowest of the low, okay? And these Samaritans are saying, He's the Savior of the world. Not just Jews. Guess what, guys? We get in on this. They're excited about that. The Savior of the world. He saves G Samaritans. He saves Gentiles. And that's why they call Him the Savior of the world. Now, people, let me make a comment here in this verse because I, uh, I, I'm so sick of this universalism teaching Okay, that so many are putting out. And you know, the motive behind universalism is God is love. He loves everybody, and everybody gets to go to heaven, and He loves everybody, and it doesn't matter if you believe or don't believe, it doesn't matter what you do, what you believe, you're all going to heaven. It's a damnable doctrine, I think, people. Okay, because the Bible clearly teaches you must believe that Yeshua is the Christ. And if you don't believe, you're damned. Okay? So, whenever you see the word all in the Bible, or the word world in the Bible, you have to ask yourself this. Does the Bible mean world without distinction or without exception? Christ is the Savior of everybody without distinction or is Christ the Savior of everybody without exception? Well, He's the Savior of everybody without distinction. It can be a Jew, it can be a Gentile, it can be black, white, whatever the candidate for salvation. It's for everybody. We preach the Gospel to all. He's the Savior of the world. It doesn't embrace simply Israel and the Jews. It embraces the whole world. Now, on the other side of universalism, you got Israel-only teaching that only Israel can be saved. Only Jews can be saved. Which, there's no Jews today, so nobody can be saved then. Okay? Another perverse, crazy doctrine. The title Savior here was used in the Roman Empire cult. It's been suggested that the Christian use of the term Refer to, you, to refer to Yeshua developed as a response in opposition to saying Caesar is Lord. And they said, no, Christ is the Savior of the world. It's not Caesar. Now, what's interesting in verse 13 through 14 here is you see the Trinity. He's given us a spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son. There we have the Trinity, people. And the Trinity is an important doctrine because without the Trinity, you strip the deity of Christ and you're in trouble. All right, let's look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Yeshua is the Son of God, God abides him, and he in God. Confess here is the Greek homologeo, which means to speak the same. In other words, you're saying the same thing about Christ that God says about him. That's what it means to confess. Confessing that Yeshua is the Son of God. Say the same thing God says. We need to agree with what God says about Yeshua in the Scriptures. And we only know that as we spend time in the Word of God. All right? 
Now, when you take this verse in isolation, just pull it and rip it out. Okay, just set it by itself. Whoever confesses that Yeshua is the Son of God, God abides in him and he abides in God. It seems to be saying that if we confess Yeshua as the Son of God, then we'll abide in God. And this verse is used by those who say that being a Christian and abiding are synonymous. Because all you got to do is confess. That's the same thing as being saved. So abiding, you just confess, you're going to abide. So it's saying the same thing. Well, what is this saying? I see John as saying that this mutual abiding relationship exists only for the one who makes this confession and in the context of Christian love. In other words, the context here is love. So he's not, you know, forget about love now, we're just talking about confession. No, this is a confession that comes from this community, a confession of truth that is so important, because some people get so hung up on love, we don't care about truth, we don't care what they believe, we're just going to love everyone. No, this confession is important, he's saying. And if you're going to abide, you're going to have to keep this confession and love one another. Notice what John said in the previous verse. And we have seen and testified, the Father has sent the Son. Here John speaks about their fellowship with the apostolic circle and what they have seen. Then in verse 15, he talks about their fellowship with the apostolic circle and what they have heard. This confession. Now if you remember, and I probably you probably can't, back to our first study in, in, uh, <coughs> in 1 John. Or back, no, back in our first study of the Gospel of John. Okay, That was a couple years ago. I said that Lazarus was the unnamed disciple of John the Baptizer mentioned in John 1, 35-40. And I believe that Lazarus was there when John gave his testimony of Yeshua in John 1, 32-34. And John bore witness. This is John the Baptizer. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now the words of John the baptizer here, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God, reflect the words of verse 14. Alright? Verse 14 says, We have seen and testify. And John the baptizer's words, This is the Son of God, reflect what we see in verse 15 of our text that Yeshua is the Son of God. So the testimony mentioned in verse 14 is not limited to the manifestation of Christian love, but John is thinking in a context where you would also hear the confession that He's the Son of God. In other words, combining here truth and love. They both are there. In the context John has in mind, the visible manifestation of Christian love was accompanied by the confession that Yeshua is the Son of God. They held the truth about who He was. And they'd heard this from the forerunner, John the Baptizer. So we could say that John's goal of leading his readers into the kind of fellowship with the apostolic circle that he talked about in 1-3 through has been reached. They're there. He says, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so you can have fellowship with us. Well, guess what? Now the readers are seeing and hearing not the physical manifestation of Christ, but they're seeing through the love of the believers and the testimony of the truth They're seeing this, and they're entering into that fellowship. And their fellowship is with the Father and the Son and with these apostles. So John's readers will hear in the midst of their loving community that Yeshua is the Son of God. Because their opponents are saying something very different than that. And then the author concludes this brief section that runs from 11 to 16a 
with these words. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. When John says we have come to know and believe, he uses a verb tense. In the Greek, it's the perfect tense. That means we have come to know and believe in the past with continuing results right up to the present. We have, we still do. The love that God has for us is a present, active, indicative, expressing God's continuing love. So John's point was that his readers, the people he's writing to, had personally seen God in a similar sense to how the apostles had seen Him. The apostles had seen God in that they had seen Him in His Son, Yeshua the Christ. God had revealed His love to the apostles through Yeshua. But the readers had seen God, and people, you can put yourself in the category of the readers, alright? The readers had seen God in that they had seen Him in His Spirit and dwelt abiding believers who love one another. They're seeing the same thing. They're seeing God manifest through the love of His people. And people, you want to talk about a powerful, powerful testimony to the world when they really see love. I read a story about the Korean War that I think illustrates what we've been talking about here this morning, about the power of love and what happens when people really see this. A young communist officer had ordered the execution of a Christian civilian. But then he learned that this prisoner was in charge of an orphanage and was doing a lot of good caring for some small children, so he decided, I'm going to spare his life. So instead, he killed his son. His 19-year-old son shot him right in front of his father. See, he was doing this guy a favor. You know, I'm going to save your life, get rid of your kid. Well, later, when the tides of the events had changed, the same officer was captured, tried, and condemned to death for war crimes. But before the sentence could be carried out, the Christian father pleaded for the life of the communist who had killed his son. Now, he admitted that it was just if justice were followed, the man should be executed. But since he argued that since the man was so young and blindly idealistic, He probably thought that his actions were right. So he pleaded with the court, Give him to me, he said. I'll teach him about the Savior. And so they granted his request. The father took the murder of his son into his own home. And as a result of his self-sacrificing love, that communist became a Christian and later became a Christian pastor. Believers, this morning, let this be your takeaway from this study. As believers love one another, we make the invisible God visible to the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, this is a powerful section of Scripture. Lord, this is a convicting section of Scripture. God, help us to realize that how we treat other Christians is how we treat You. Help us to realize, Lord, that we can make You visible to the world in which we live by our love for one another. Lord, I pray our desire would be to abide in You, to fellowship with You, to commune with You, that we would spend time in the Word of God getting to know You, getting to love You, that that love may be made perfect in us as it's demonstrated to others who also love You. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. May we be able to apply what we've learned here today, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions? Comments? 
kind of self-explanatory, I think, for the most part, right? I love the silence. I don't know what to think. Was it too complicated? You don't even know how to form a question, or it was so simple that you got it all? I hope for the second. I hope for the second one. Yes, I can. As a matter, thank you, Jeff. Let me go back and start over. Let's let's do this again. Um, <clears throat> It's not difficult. It's impossible. Okay? <laughs> Apart from dependence on God and the Spirit. Okay? And that's the whole thing. We are to live in dependence on God for everything. Now, part of that is spending time in the Word of God. So He teaches us through the Word of God and then calling out to Him in prayer to empower us to do what He's called us to do. This is a life. This is not, you know. Sunday morning from 11 to 1 or whatever. This is day to day to day to day, you know. And if it's there, people are going to see it. It's not something you fool people with, okay? Cheryl? My burden is easy, take my yoke. Is that the same or is that totally different? Well, he, I think in that text where he's asking them to take his yoke, the yoke of a lot of the rabbis was very difficult, very complicated, okay? And he's saying, this is not a complicated thing. This is easy to understand, all right? So, but it, I mean, listen. If if he's empowering it, that that's the only way it's going to happen, okay? And you know that because again, he says, "In this is love." Not that you like your people that are all nice to you and doing everything right for you. This is love that we love those who don't like us or hate us. That's love, he says. That's what it is. So that's supernatural, okay? Because. We have a hard enough time loving people who love us, <laughs> let alone loving those who don't. Yes, Dora. You show this God-like love to people that you know is not from you, talking to non-believers, um, and they look at you like you're crazy, and mm-hmm. you don't see any change in them or anything, so it's going to take time, I guess, before. You never know well, what God yeah. is doing for you them. You don't know. That's and the it's thing. it's hard you... to stay steadfast <laughs> when you don't see results and right. you're loving these people and all they do is persecute you. Right. You but here's the thing, people. It's not about results. It's about obedience. Okay? Um, and that's the thing. We're called to be obedient. We're not called to get results. That's, that's God's department. We're just to do what He's called us to do in loving one another. And, and you know, people... That's why people try to find faults in Christians because they don't want their standard blown, you know, so if they can bring you down to their level, then they're happy. Oh, cool, you're no different than me, you know. But if they see love in this incredible way, that you know, it just, you know, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, it's God's got to do it. But when you see it, wow, it's powerful. David? question about the end of verse 12. John uses the perfect tense there as well, and I'm trying to understand his use of it. Because at the end it says, well, the part that says, if we may love one another, God in us does remain, and his love is having been perfected in us. When would that have been? I think when it when it was happening. That's I think at that time that was happening in this community. God's love is being perfected in them. Because they're I mean, that's what John's saying. They're seeing the invisible God right then in that community. So the whole purpose of the epistle is being fulfilled in these people. They're seeing it happen. And again, you know, our culture is so different. 
it's so different, you know, now. Because, I mean, how many of us have to make sacrifices for each other? How many of us are called to lay down our lives for a brother? It's just, uh, you know, and it's, and it's degraded to the fact of go to church on Sunday, maybe read your Bible a little bit, and that's it. That's Christianity. That's, <laughs> that's not biblical Christianity. Anybody else? Some of the opportunities that I turn my nose up to, you know, it's like, suck it up. Throw back on I got a question here. Exodus thirty-three, eleven. In light of no man has seen God. I don't know if you were. Here. That's from Lynn. And Lynn, I don't know if you're here for the whole message, but we kind of talked about that in the beginning. Um, let me go back there. Make sure I'm saying this same thing here. Thirty-three, eleven. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Again, that is a veiled presentation. Okay, God never just you know unveiled because He told Moses. You know, you can't see my face and live. All right? So when they talked face to face, he did communicate some, you know, there was a light, there was a cloud, you know, the Shekinah glory. God revealed himself, but it was not in an unveiled thing. And again, this is not the Father, this is the Son. The Son is always the visible member of the Trinity. 